0: I'm going to read from the prophet Isaiah today, just before we pray, just to remind us who it is that we serve, what he does for us. Do you not know and have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain a new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get weary, they will walk and not become tired. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is not as if we have not heard these things or that we could somehow deny them, that you have created this world and your hand is upon all things that we see. Your word is clear in your love for us, the purpose of placing us here in this world so that we might give you glory, so that the things of Christ might be manifest in our lives. So that all that we do and say would be to your glory. That our lives might be devoted to you in acts of worship and service. That the words of our mouths might declare the things of Christ. The works of our hands would demonstrate it, would bear the fruit of the faith that you've placed within us. Lord, when those days come upon us that we are weary, that we are tired that this world presses upon us, that through perhaps struggle or trial, trauma, disaster, or simply the pace of life where we grow weary and tired, we are reminded that it is you who gives strength, a strength that is not our own. It is you that picks us up and sustains us, for it is in your the palm of your hand that we reside, and under your wings that we find shelter. Lord, it is not those who always run ahead, it is not those who lag behind, but those who wait for you. Those who wait upon your direction and upon your person and your purposes, it is a new strength that we will gain, a strength some days that we will need to mount up like eagles and fly. A strength like some days that we will need to run and not grow tired. But it is strength also that you provide for us each day in the walk of faith that you place before us, that we will not grow weary in it, that the things of Christ will be ever more real to us. Lord, we come today with plenty of things on our hearts stresses of the week, our own errors and mistakes. And also the joys that you have placed in our lives, Lord. The blessings that you have bestowed upon us. But we come today to worship you, Lord. Remind us of your presence in our hearts. Remind us of your call upon us. That we might take all that you bring into our lives. All the blessings, all the struggles. That we might understand what it is that you are doing in the midst of those things. And how you are molding and shaping us, more and more conforming us to the image of your Son. That with our mouth and with our lives, we might declare his glory. So Lord, for those who come today, whose hearts are heavy for some reason, who struggle, ask that you remind them of your care and peace and grace. Lift them up, Lord, that they might really sense within their hearts your presence, your call upon their lives, and your care So, Lord, we come to you not on our own ability as if we could somehow deserve these great things. But we come to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is through his work and through his life, his death and resurrection, that we approach the throne of grace. So we share together the prayer that he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It is our privilege to come and to worship the Lord as he has made a way for us. So I invite the ushers to come forward that we might give of the blessings of the Lord that others might know this as well. Father, you have sent your son to suffer but once for our sins, that we might be cleansed of our unrighteousness, that we might know his righteousness, that he would take our sin. Lord, we pray that these tithes and these offerings would be used so that others might know that as well, so that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ might penetrate their hearts and minds, their eyes would be open to it, that your grace and your mercy would reign in their lives that the work of your church, the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ, would go forward. And we ask in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Let's let's turn in uh, our Bibles to Jude, verse 6 this morning. Stand with me, and I'll read the first six verses of Jude. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us this morning, provide for us understanding and insight into your word, that our eyes would be opened through the power of the Spirit, that your word would dwell in us, that we would understand it, that because of it we would seek after you even more diligently. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, Jude, and we us deal with verse 6 today, but uh, just to get the context, we'll read all the way through up to verse 6. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write, To you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in, in eternal bonds, bonds of darkness for the day of judgment. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. <clears throat> And you'll notice he begins in verse 5 and gives uh, three illustrations, remember, of uh, people who who have known the truth and heard it and and seen it and turned their back upon it. So last week, uh, last time we dealt with the um, uh, illustration of the Jews in the Old Testament, and today we are dealing with an example of angels who turn their back on the things of the Lord. Now, I I can remember... uh, I think I was still in high school uh, when the first Star Wars movie came out, and we went to the theater and sure enough, the line was so long that we couldn 't get into the theater okay and Now you can see them almost every weekend or buy the dvds and and um, you know those were the the good Star Wars ones the four, five, and six, not the one, twos, and threes and it just depends upon your taste i guess but but George lucas in in the story of and the story centers around this this guy, uh, Anakin Skywalker, who becomes a Jedi Knight. Okay, and he has this great power and this great ability. But he was seduced by the the dark side. Okay, and it's the dark side of the Force. What's the Force? Uh, I'm not going there. But he was seduced by the dark side and became affectionately known as Darth Vader, the guy who breathes heavily. Okay, Now, um, well, you, you think of, of what seduced him to the dark side, and it was the power of the dark side, the power that was available. Well, what seduces us to the dark side, I, I began to think, and just some categories, power, of course, personal gain, maybe a, a, an appeal to pride. Uh, these might be the most powerful draws to the things of evil to us. But Star Wars is a fictional account of the future. Jude 6 is a literal account of what has happened in the past by those who were seduced by the dark side, so to speak. Now we saw in Jude 5 how the Israelites turned their back on the new Lord and an entire generation was uh, killed, everybody over the age of 20. They died in the wilderness, not Permitted to enter into the promised land because of their disobedience, they were not seduced as much as uh, they—they lacked faith, okay, or they lacked the application and trust of the Lord. Now they saw these great things of what the Lord had done. I mean, they had uh, brought these plagues upon Egypt. He had uh, turned them loose. He had parted the sea. He had provided for them time and time again. They got to the promised land and they went, "Oh." There are giants there and we can't get in and and too many walled cities and the Lord can't do this except for Joshua and Caleb who said, come on, let's go. They sided with the other spies and as a result, most of them over the age of 20 did not get to see the promised land. Well, Our second example of those who will be judged for apostasy is the judgment upon the angels, verse 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain. They did not stay within their own position of authority. That's who this judgment is upon. Now we know that Satan fell, so we've got all of these things are tied in. So we're going to go to several places today because we'll see how these things fit in the overall scheme of scripture now Jude does not really elaborate on these things he just passes over them and mentions them assuming assuming and I would have to assume that he is assuming um, that really makes it tough doesn't it Um, that his audience understands what he is referencing so let's go to Isaiah chapter 14. going to go and look at Isaiah 14 and then also Ezekiel 28 to get uh, two accounts of this same event that um, uh, Jude is kind of alluding to uh, with these angels uh, that he is referring to. So in Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12 we have what is affectionately known as the fall of Satan. Um, Now our whole passage is what underlines our whole passage and what I, I really wrestled with is that how could you be there before the Lord? How could you be a created being of the Lord and have a domain that was created by the Lord and an authority that was given to you by the Lord and to be in his presence and go, y- you know what, this isn't good enough. I want something else. Well, here is the head Angel, so to speak, uh, Satan and his fall in I- Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. This is the pride portion. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. This is the fall of Satan. He wanted to be more than God. He had this this pride, this desire to go beyond the area and the world that he was created for and what he was given to do. Now turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28. We go to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now, in in the passage in Ezekiel, it is a lament over the king of Tyre. But the king of Tyre is also, uh, how should we say, also fits the category or is an allusion as well to the fall of Satan. Okay? So the immediate context is the king of Tyre. Uh, the larger context is the um, issue with Satan. So Ezekiel 28, verse 12. Son of man, take up the lamentation of the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis and lazuli, and the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, your You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. So here we have two instances, one expanded a little bit further, on the fall of Satan from his position. Now it's also seen for us in Luke. It's seen for us in Revelation. He was, in a very real sense, seduced to the dark side through his own pride, through his own longing to be more than what he was created for then he did not strive to be like God in holiness and righteousness. He wanted to be more than God in authority and power and dominion. That was a problem. So we go back to Jude and we see the same problem with these angels that Jude is referring to, those who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. Abandoned their proper abode. As I, I, I wondered, how is it that angels, being created beings, servants of the Most High God, could ever go beyond their purposes? It's not like these angels we find in, in Jude 6 were wandering in the desert uh, like the Israelites, questioning whether what was God doing and why are we out here. They were there in the midst of the Lord, in the midst of what he had created them to do and the purposes uh, of their work, and they left it because they wanted more. They wanted something else. And because of this, they were banished and placed in chains. We'll see that in a moment. They were angels in heaven, but they chose to leave their abode and to go beyond their domain. And Jude says they are in eternal chains in this gloomy or utter or bitter, however you want to translate that word, darkness. They sought a station and a position that God had not given them. And as Satan was exalted in a way, and exalted himself in a way that God had not designed for him, they are all now bound in this fashion. So Jude 6, as is, is, is we kind of hinted at, is really complex, and Jude doesn't lay it out for us, but we've got to go to a lot of different places to understand exactly what Jude is saying here. So as I said, he mentions it in passing, assuming his crowd will know what he is talking about. Well, obviously the topic of the angels is they did not stay within their first position or their first habitation. The Greek word for stay here means to guard or protect, and then for position means rule or dignity or domain. So the angels failed to guard their first domain. Instead of sticking with the dignity and the responsibility and the the uh, rule that God had given them, they left their habitation. That habitation was in heaven, what they were created for, and deliberately turned away from what was consistent with their nature and their purposes and sought selfishness and sought sin. Now, what was so bad about leaving their first place and not staying within their own uh, position of authority? Two reasons two things here, what was so bad. Number one, God told them not to do it. Now we we think, is that really bad? Well, of course that's really bad. I mean, there are certain things that God says do not do. And when you do those things, you should assume that there's going to be a penalty for that. So they went beyond what the Lord said to do. Um, Secondly, look at verse 7 of Jude. This gives us some clue as to the specifics of what their sin was was. Just as. So this is a comparison uh, in in type to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. So this was their problem. Uh, They indulged themselves in what? Gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Gross immorality and strange flesh. So exactly what this was is not laid out specifically, but it is given as a clear comparison with what went on at Sodom and Gomorrah and what these angels did. Now, do you remember the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? The men of those cities, their gross immorality was their homosexual behavior and, and their licentiousness throughout uh, the entire city. But they're also, that's their gross immorality, but they also went after strange flesh. God sends the angels to save Lot and to get him out of the city. So these two angels, and, and angels typically are, sh- are shown as men, are uh, male and, in Scripture, show up at Lot's house, and the men of the city come, and they want to have relations with these two men. Okay? And they are so bent on this that they, they lack any other vision or any other idea. They just want these two, that, whether they knew they were angels or not, I, I don't know. But they want these two. Now, the fallen angels in Jude 6 did the same type of thing except in reverse. Okay? The unnatural desire or, or other flesh of verse 7, it says, they went after strange flesh. Here, that's heteros, a different. They went after a different nature, a different kind, or a, a different uh, type of flesh than they were. So just as the men of Sodom lusted after a different type, a different nature, those two angels in particular, so the angels listed here in verse 6 of Jude lusted after a different nature, and that would be human women. Now what event would Jude 6 be referring to? Jude 6 is referring to Genesis chapter 6. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. We'll we'll learn more about seven next week, but we just get this this taste so that there is this, we understand there is this gross immorality and this desire for strange flesh, both in the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as what is going on here in these angels. So here we have Genesis chapter 6, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Let me read those for us. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Now, the sons of God, there's some debate as to what that word means. Does that mean there's simply, maybe your translation says the sons of Seth. Um, But what it means is the sons of God is referring to angels. Now, every time that that phrase is used, sons of God, uh, in the Hebrew, in, in Scripture, in particular three times in Job, it refers to angels. Okay, So what it's talking about, it refers to those who were brought directly into being by God. They were created by God, not through uh, natural birth, but through creation of the Lord. And then the phrase, the sons of God, is also found in um, extra-biblical material. That means material outside of Scripture and in particular in a book called first enoch now you go uh oh, gee Rand. Um, should we re- really be referring to first enoch since it's not a scriptural uh a book well jude and peter both refer by allusion and by quote to first enoch so first enoch is not an inspired work But obviously Jude and Peter are familiar with it and give it enough credence in this particular area that we can kind of count on it and look at it and see what it says. So Jude, Peter and and how it ties into Genesis, this reference from from First Enoch seems to give us this idea that the sons of God in biblical and extra-biblical material would be those who were brought into creation by God and they were angelic beings and we'll see how Jude refers to first Enoch again in verses 14 and 15 uh, when we get there so what do we have in mind here in that this passage in Genesis is tied to Jude it's also tied to first Peter chapter 3 and second Peter chapter 2 or yeah chapter 2 and so we're not only going to learn this morning about these apostasy by angels we're going to learn about that phrase that we say In the Apostles' Creed. And he descended into hell. Okay, now how many of you have wondered what that phrase meant? Well, the rest of you are theologically astute. Fantastic. Uh, We'll see that in just a moment, okay? Uh, We'll see that in just a moment. So what we have here in Genesis 6, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Let me finish reading verse 2. That the sons of God, that would be the angels saw that daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So what we're finding here is that these angels, uh, how do I? If I had to paint a picture, if I uh, in my imagination I put it together, we got some angels together, and, and and they're kind of the selfish angels, and they look around and go, "Hey, did you see the women that God has created down on Earth? Here's an idea, let's go down." And possess some of the men on earth, and then we can have these women for ourselves, and our offspring will now be corrupt, and they will grow bigger and stronger than all the humans that are down there. Okay, that's if I had to paraphrase what's going on here, that's part of what is going on. Because we see in Numbers thirteen the word Nephilim, which comes from the word the, the Hebrew word to fall. Talks about giants. So they are through the intermixion of demons, which are these fallen angels now, and men, you have bred a group of Nephilim, which are bigger and stronger. It's like the six million dollar man, bigger, stronger, and faster okay, than the rest of the humans. And as we see, they're referred to mighty men uh, or those who were men of renown in other places. Now, why would Satan encourage this? Why would Satan get with his group and say, guys, you got to go down and do this? Okay, why would he encourage this? Well, he'd already corrupted Cain, remember? He'd come and... and, and, uh, Because of the fall, sin was now involved. Cain killed his brother. But salvation and victory over Satan was guaranteed through the offspring of the woman. So the best way for Satan to win is corrupt the entire offspring of women. So he gets with this group of his uh, um, uh, bad angels and he sends them down to breed with these women, so to speak, and to corrupt the entire human race. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Now what happens as a result of this? Now we find that the Lord um, saw what was going on that all he said uh, the whole every the desire of every heart is corrupt and is evil so he brings the flood and he cleanses the earth uh, of this race and he saves Noah and his wife and sons and their wives because Noah alone is righteous in all these things so Genesis chapter 6 shows us this sin of this group of angels as they come down to human women. Now, what is the punishment of this? Go back to Jude. No, front and back, front and back. But go back to Jude and we'll see the punishment that is laid upon them and the judgment on these fallen angels. As says, the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bounds under darkness. So, another phrase, everlasting chains. Those angels are to be kept by God in chains. The Greek word for keeping is tereo, which is in a tense that says it happens in the past and continues on into the future. So, they were bound by chains and that bounding continues on until the day of judgment it implies that the angels were placed in a confinement by God and are still there today now obviously this doesn't mean all the fallen angels because there is demonic activity in the world and they are still at work so this particular group that sinned in Genesis chapter 6 this group is held in chains and not only are they in chains but they are under darkness now It's hard to find darkness in our world because we've got so much uh, electronic light in the world. Uh, Even if you go out at night, you've got the stars. The best way to describe this this Greek word for darkness is to go down to the cathedral caverns, go to the end of the tour, and when they turn out the lights, you can see nothing. Okay, it is almost oppressive, the weight of that darkness. If you've been down there, you, you try to open your eyes wider so that you can see. You can't see. These fallen angels have been placed in chains by God and in this utter darkness. And that is where they will remain until the day of judgment. Now, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter two describes this same incident. Verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and he goes on and on, but in verse 5, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, so we see that he's tying these angels in to the events around Noah, so we're talking about the same angels here, and he uses this word hell. Now, this is not a, a normal biblical word. That Peter uses for hell. It is a a word that is often found in Greek mythology, Tartarus, and it's identified with with the absolute lowest level, subterranean abyss, uh, the nastiest of the nastiest uh, place. It was the place that was reserved for the most wicked spirits, the worst criminals, the worst rebels, the severest divine punishment. That's what this word means. Now, it's not uncommon, For biblical writers to use these extra-biblical words that are used in common usage, like Jesus calls hell uh, Gehenna. Gehenna was the trash heap next to Jerusalem where they would throw all the trash and the fires burned continuously. As the gas was released from from the trash or the methane formed, Uh, these fires would burn unceasing. And he talks about that and uses that as example to the punishments that the non-believers will find in hell. Well, Peter is using this word to Taurus to show us how deep and how dark these, this place is where these angels who had it all, knew it all, saw their domain and rebelled against our Heavenly Father. This is where they are. He uses a familiar word to designate this. First Enoch uses it. Jude uses it again in verse 14. Now remember... These angels were created to occupy a domain in God's heaven. They had every every authority to do what they were created to do. They had the position before the Lord and they left it. And they left it. Verse 5 and God who did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, and he was brought and when he brought flood upon the ungodly, and then and he goes on to condemn Sodom and Gomorrah and on and on and on he's talking about this judgment that is there in these lives and in the lives particularly of these angels. Now go back a couple pages to first Peter chapter three. Now, all of these things, I hope you see how they're tying together, and we're getting here to this point when we get to the phrase, and he descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed. Okay? So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So Christ died on the cross, but his spirit was alive. Now it tells us that... um, what was going on with his spirit when his body was in the grave. Now, there historically have been two explanations for what the phrase descended into hell means. The first was he went into the grave. Hell, used in this uh, context in the Apostles' Creed, is another way of saying the grave. The second explanation is this passage from 1 Peter, that it refers to the same incident that Peter talks about, uh, in, in 2 Peter, Jude talks about in his epistle and these angels who were cast into this darkness and bound by the chains of the Lord. So this means that when Christ died on the cross, all of hell probably thought, we got him, okay? He's, he's dead. We've killed the Son of God. But here is Jesus going to the Tartarus, the, the worst, lowest, darkest place in hell, and he proclaims. To those angels, his victory on the cross and his coming resurrection. Now, he does not go down and evangelize. That's a different word. He makes proclamation. This is the same word that is used by the heralds that would go before the conquering Roman generals as they entered Rome. The the generals who had overcome the Gauls or whatever, they would come back to Rome and have this long procession uh, of, of spoils and soldiers, and the heralds would go proclaiming their victory. And this is what has happened. Christ did not go down to preach for them to repent. He went down to say, I have won. I have overcome, and I will return again for judgment. And until that time, you are here in this darkness, bound by the chains because of your sin. And all this goes back to the days of Noah and these angels who thought it would be cool to come down and attempt to corrupt the human race. So what we have found is that Jude is now giving us two examples, the Israelites and these fallen angels. And next time we're going to see Gentiles. Okay? They had everything. They had personal knowledge of God. They had the presence of God. They had personal experience of his miraculous powers, but still they turned their backs on him. And after seeing God move in these powerful ways, providing for them again and again, the Israelites said, we don't think God can do this anymore. We don't think he's capable of overcoming these people in in the promised land and giving us the promised land like he said he would. And then you have this group of angels. Angels. And I think, isn't this apostasy by these angels and the apostasy by the Israelites, isn't this almost inconceivable to us? To see these great things, to be in the presence of the Lord, and then to turn your back on Him. These two groups had it all, but left the Lord. How will it be for those in this world who have heard the gospel of Christ, who have lived And grown up in godly homes, attended churches and other activities where the gospel was clearly laid out and had evidence of the things of Christ placed before them and then for them to turn their backs on all that they have been given and offered. It is eternally imperative, eternally imperative that we hold fast to the things of Christ and not be seduced by anything else, by any other power, by any other authority. As humans, we might think to ourselves, well, things aren't going quite the way I want to lately. Um, I think I'll try something else concerning God. Or uh, I never really understood those, those passages of Scripture, so I, I don't think they're going to apply to me, so I'm just not going to pay attention to them in my life. Or I think I can get a better deal someplace else spiritually. More in line with my personal tastes. The Israelites didn't think God was capable. The angels at it all and turn their backs on the Lord. Both groups face judgment. This is what happens to those who hear the things of Christ, close their hearts to the things of Christ. They too will face judgment. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling to hold fast to the things of Christ so we never turn our backs on him. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are not really that different than the Israelites' hearts. We too can be doubting of your power and authority. We too can turn our backs on the obvious things that you have done and go and seek after what, what's calling us something that may seem a little bit more according to our likes. Maybe the things of, of Christ seem hard for us now and we like something easier. Or someone comes along and and promises us a, a better something if only we compromise a little bit on what Scripture says. Or comes to us and says, this portion of Scripture really doesn't apply to you, don't worry about it. All of these things are out there and our hearts can be seduced by them. But you call us, Lord, to dwell richly with the word of Christ. To have it in our hearts and in our minds. To hold fast to those things. To be mindful of the grace that you have given to us and how we are called to live it out. Lord, these are examples of those who have been judged. Lord, we do not want to fall in that category. So I would pray that today and in the coming days, We each would examine our own hearts, that we would look deep within. Is Christ our Lord and Savior? Is he what is preeminent in our lives? Have you called us to serve in different ways? And how can I best serve in that fashion in the life that I live? How can I best demonstrate the things of Christ in my profession and in my home, in my leisure and in my family? Lord, that we would never turn our backs upon you and face judgment. Fill our hearts, Lord, with your grace and mercy. Remind us of the sacrifice of Christ for us and this great love you have for us so undeserved. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Our hymn is 458. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. 458. Let's stand as we sing. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. It's a dangerous prayer, a dangerous request, but that is what Christ calls us to. Heavenly Father, send us out that you may have all of us, that we would withhold nothing from you, that we would know the joys of grace and mercy, Lord, hear in our minds and see in our eyes the dangers of judgment, that we would give you, all that we are, that our bodies would be offered to you as a living sacrifice, wholly devoted to thee. Send us out, Lord, that we might know this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.
1: we yeah.